Okay, hi everybody. Welcome um, to the March 5th OA Rise speaker meeting. My name is Cassie and I'm a compulsive eater and your host for this meeting. OA Rise stands for Recovery Inspires Shared Experience and we are glad you are all here. Will all those who wish to please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the trinity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Okay. OA's unity with diversity policy. As we extend the heart and hand of the OA fellowship to those who still suffer, let us be mindful of OA's unity with diversity policy which respects our differences, yet unites us in the solution to our common problem. Whatever problem you may have with food, you are welcome at this meeting. And will Nicole please read the OA preamble? Nicole? Um, Nic Nicole, compulsive overeater. Um, Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. And my dog does too. Uh, I don't know if you hear him, but I do. Um, there are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting or accepting outside donations. OA is, is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine, we take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive overeating and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Thank you, Nicole. And Janet is going to read the 12 steps for us. Janet, Recovering Compulsive Overeater. The 12 Steps of Overeaters Anonymous. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, Admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. 10, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Pass. Thank you, Janet. And is somebody able to read the 12 traditions for us? Any vol anybody volunteer to read the traditions? 
can just raise your hand. I can do that, I'm Kathy. Thank you, Sherry. Hi, friends. I'm a compulsive overreader. I'm Blaine My name is Sherry. These are the 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends on OA, sorry, upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. 12, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you. Thank you, Sherry. The OA Seventh Tradition. According to our seventh tradition, we are self-supporting through our own contributions. Should we happen to receive contributions in excess of our expenses, they will be sent directly to the World Service Office. Contributions can be made by PayPal to our email address, info at oarise.org, or you can visit our website at oarise.org and click the con con Contribute Now button on the home screen. A suggested donation of $3 allows us to cover the cost of the Zoom subscription, and it also helps us to maintain the OA Rise website where we upload and store recordings for you and for all OA members. Your seventh tradition contributions are needed to keep the OA Rise speaker meeting going. And as of just recently, we've had like about 8,500 listens to the podcasts um, that have been generated through this meeting over the last couple and a half years that we've been doing this. Thank you, everybody. This meeting is a two and a half hour speaker meeting. At this time, all attendees are muted. This meeting is being recorded so that an audio only recording can be posted on the oarise.org website. Should there be a Q&A in this meeting and you have a question for the speaker, but you don't want your voice to be heard on that recording, please send your question to a co-host through the chat and we will read your question for you. By sharing or asking a question, you consent to being recorded and having the recording posted on the OARISE website. Here are a few tips for participating in the Zoom meeting. The chat is currently turned off and will remain so until the end of the meeting. If you need any assistance, you may chat with myself, the host, or any of the co-hosts. Today's co-hosts are Janice, Sherry, and Jan. Please know that speakers are only listed to co-hosts so they can have access to the Zoom features. Um, they will not be able to respond to questions during the meeting, so please communicate with the OA Rise hosts and co-hosts. You're welcome to change your name as it appears in Zoom. 
out of courtesy to others and the speaker, if you need to get up and move around, if you need to eat, check your phone or talk with someone who's in the room with you, please turn off your video so your actions will not be distracting to others. If necessary, we may turn off your, your video, but we will be happy to turn it back on when you're ready. Just send a message to any of the hosts or co-hosts. Please note that specific foods may be mentioned at this meeting. We will take a five-minute break approximately halfway through the meeting. And finally, just a reminder that the opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. And so now it is time for our speaker. That's awesome. It's my pleasure to introduce Joe. And Joe's topic today is Steps 6 and 7, Gateway to Healthy Relationships and Emotional Sobriety Abstinence. And welcome, Joe. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. I appreciate you asking me. I'm always honored when I'm asked to share. My name is Joe and I am a compulsive overeater. I'm going to share my screen and I, I would like for uh, Bronwyn to read what I put up, please. Bronwyn, if you could unmute Bronwyn, please. Well, I'll read it then. A problem is solved and immediately there is hope that an even tougher one will go the same way. One day as we discussed a dif difficult relationship problem, my sponsor said, if you're doing it to please him, you're back in your disease. That statement helped me see that on the emotional side of my recovery, God was rarely my higher power. Sometimes my higher power was my husband. Sometimes it was the immature parts of my personality. Sometimes it was people whose acceptance and approval I wanted. These people, including my childish self, had the power over me to control my thoughts, feelings, and actions. I began to see that even though I was physically abstinent, I wasn't emotionally abstinent. I still tried to control things, such as the outcome of events and the behavior and feelings of those around me. Maybe that was why I lacked serenity and my life seemed out of control and overwhelming. I felt discouraged, but from the line from the four today, it reassured me, a problem is solved. Immediately there is hope that an even tougher one will go the same way. I began my, writing my way through the steps to learn the difference between compulsive emotional behavior and emotional abstinence. Today, God helps me to be emotionally abstinent. I do the footwork and God does for me what I cannot do for myself. And that is from our uh, meditation book called uh, uh, Voices of Recovery. And it happened to come today, which I thought was really interesting, considering that the uh, program was on, the meeting was on uh, healthy relationships and emotional sobriety. You know, when I, I made this topic and I was thinking about it a couple of days later, I thought, what the hell do I know about relationships? And it kind of hit me that, you know, when I came into this program, uh, I had exactly three friends in Houston, the fourth largest city in the United States, after uh, about seven years in Houston. And it showed that I was, I had very few relationships. And most of the time, uh, you know, I was, I, one of the promises that really was important to me was that fear of people and economic insecurity will leave you. And, you know, that was one of the biggest, biggest things that I had to deal with. 
I'm going to tell a little bit of my story now. And I always like to, I wrote an autobiography of myself. And I'm going to share the screen again and show you the autobiography. Now, you have to understand, I wrote this as an 11-year-old boy. So there is a few misspellings and wrong dates. And it says, my life started as any other life did in a, in a hospitality room. I'm sure I'm in hospi hospital room, but, you know, never telling. It may have started in a hospitality room. <laughs> On October 6, 1944, I was the second son to Mr. and Mrs. Ty Aker. My family includes my brother, Tommy, who is 15, my mother and father and dog and parakeet. When I was three years old, I took a trip. We took a trip to California and a trip to New York when I was four. In 1949, I started my own bank account. I put in $4.28, similar to what I have in the bank right now. In 1949, I started a school at Linwood. In 1951, we got us a boxer pup and named him Rusty. In 1953, we got us a parakeet. We named him Dinky. In 1956, I was promoted to Taft Junior High, where I studied art for two years. In 1959, I was promoted to Northwest Classen. In 1963, I graded. I meant graduated, of course, and it was 1962 from Northwest class and went to college for four years. In 1965, I was married, and in 1966, my wife had twins. Then I studied to be a preacher. Then I preached at Linwood Methodist Church. I went to that church as a boy. In 1979, the church needed a new room, so I won $25,000 on Name That Tune. Then in 1981, I was a preacher on the spaceship Colleen, where I was the uh, the something, I can't, could never read it. Then in 1885, of course, I meant 1985, I started the first church on Mars. In 1990, I wrote the story of my life called The Oklahoma Boy. You know, I found this a couple of years after I came into the program. And it was sort of like one of those things that was a mind-boggling thing for me. Because what it did was it showed me several things about myself. One was that I had a real big ego to think that I needed a book named after me. And two was that I had a loving, caring God, a God that loved me no matter what, exactly the way I was. And part of my story is that I lost that God. I lost that God. And I'm going to show you some pictures now of me uh, as a kid. This is me when I was about uh, eight years old, nine years old, something. I'm the boy in the middle. I'm very thin, as you can tell. Uh, this is me in 1958, which was, I was 13 years old, 14 years old. And, uh, you know, again, I was very thin. And this is me probably around the same age, maybe in another six months or so. And as you can tell, I'm a real snappy dresser. I thought a lot about myself. I had a lot of self-esteem. I had a lot of self-worth and a snappy dresser. You notice most of you are, if you're young, old enough, you remember the shoes that are black on the bottom and white on the top. They were their latest thing. And that's what I had to have. This is me three years later. I went from about 70 or 80 pounds to about 300 to 350 pounds. And I uh, stayed most of that weight until I came into Overeaters Anonymous, except for periods of diets. This was me at age 31 with my dad. And then this was me a couple, three or four years ago, which shows what happens to you if you stay in the program long enough. 
you get enough self-esteem to show uh, yourself, uh, show your stomach no matter what, and kind of dress up and everything in a Mardi Gras costume. And so, you know, what happened, what it was like and what, what it is like now. I was born into a, you know, sometimes I like to ask a group to say, how many people grew up in a functional family? And, you know, I don't get many hands raised when I ask that. And my family was, my dad was a rager and my mother was a raging Al-Anon. And my dad stopped drinking and became a dry drunk. Uh, I grew up in Oklahoma City. I, uh, when I was about uh, 13, when the, when I started to gain weight from a, a, a very thin weight to a heavy weight to 300, I was somewhere between 300 and 350 pounds. I don't, didn't weigh when I was that heavy. And what happened? At age 13, my grandmother died. And I had been sleeping with my grandmother arm in arm for many, many years to watch her and grandpa who lived next door to us. This is a form of emotional sexual abuse. And what it was, was I didn't know how to handle her dying. I had the questions of what happened? What's the universe like? What happens after you die? Do you have, con you know, I had all of these questions and nobody told me how to handle them. It was very, very scary time for me. And so what happened was one night about two o'clock when I couldn't sleep, which is very usual for me, I called my mother next door and she had those magic words, which told me what to do, to not feel and to sleep. She said, go into the kitchen, get some cookies and milk, and that will help you to sleep. And that was when I turned, I turned from being a normal eater to a compulsive overeater. It was when I could find that I could kill my feelings without very, very easily by just eating. And I continued to do that until I came into this program at age 39. Uh, I did fourth and fifth step very quickly. Uh, I did a lot of, it was a lot about me uh, being molested by my uncle when I was 11 years old and how to deal with that. Uh, I started to work on step six and seven right away. And, uh, you know, I hate to say this, 39 years later, I'm still working on step six and seven. And, you know, so what it is, is about is that I started to, I, I started to work the steps. I started to get very, very active at Overeaters Anonymous. I was going to, between OA and AA, which I got sober in October of 83, uh, I started going to about eight weeks, eight meetings uh, a week. Uh, my first meeting was in May of 1983. In February of that year, I had bought a building with the two of the only three friends that I had, and they had been sober for uh, about six years. And I think that they knew after about two weeks that they uh, needed to get me into a 12-step program. And so they started to 12-step me into OA. I wasn't at my top weight then. I was only about 265 pounds. And so I, uh, I just didn't think it would work for me. The last diet that I had been on was typical of the type of diet that I went on. Uh, in 1978, I believe it was, or 77, I'm not too clear on that. Uh, I went on a diet and I went from 272 pounds down to 141 pounds in nine months. 
and my diet consisted of a bowl of vegetable soup and a glass of iced tea for lunch. And it was waiting for me when I got out of the car and walked into the restaurant, same restaurant every day. They knew what I was going to order and they had it waiting on the table. And dinner was a very heavy dinner of 35 to 50 milligrams of Valium dropped in three or four scotches. And that was basically all I had for nine months. And I went from 272 down to 141. And the diet worked until I picked up that first piece of pie. And then I was off and running again. I was miserable. In, in a, Friday, a Saturday of, of May of 1983, I was driving along on Memorial Highway, which is a uh, freeway. And uh, I was probably drinking a Coke, large, large Coke and a couple of candy bars because I was doing something I didn't want to do because I couldn't say no. And so there was a car parked on the freeway and I hit the car at about 70 miles an hour, 60 to 70 miles an hour. I said for several years that uh, it was because I, there were other cars on the freeway and I couldn't move over. And after my mind cleared, I realized that there were no cars on the freeway. I think at that moment, I just wanted to die. I had been waking up every morning doing one of two things, either saying the Lord's Prayer, which was real strange for me because I was an atheist by that time, or I would think about getting the gun out of my head and shooting myself in the head. I walked away from that wreck, basically unharmed. And I went to the doctor on Monday. I'd had a physical a couple, three weeks before, and he had said, you need to lose weight. Like I said, it was around 260, 265. And he said, you know, the reason you weren't hurt is because you're so fat. And I said, he said, but you need to lose weight. I remember the room. I remember where I was sitting. It was a metal uh, examination table. And I said to him, I've been thinking about going to Overeaters Anonymous. I think that that was when I took the first step, even though I didn't know a thing about the 12 steps. I went home. I asked the two people that brought me to the program that I had bought the building with to take me to a meeting on Friday night, which they had been advertising as a great place to lose weight. And of course, I thought if I was thin, my life would be perfect. And so I went to that meeting. I sat in the back of the room. They sat on either side of me, I think, to keep me from jumping out of the room. But I was I heard some things that were to change my life. One was. There is a solution to the way that I felt on the inside. There is a solution. Two was that you eat three meals a day, nothing in between. and You don't eat sugar. Three was that you're only as sick as your secrets. And I went home that night. I read a book, uh, the pamphlet on uh, OA to the men, uh, to the man in OA. And I read Dignity of Choice, and I picked out a plan of eating. And I made a decision the next day I was going to have three meals a day, nothing in between, and no sugar. And so I met with the two people that took me to the meeting the next day and had several questions. You know, do I need to go to more than one meeting a week? And they said, it's probably a good idea. And I said, you know, is this a cult like the Moonies? Because there seemed to be a lot of chanting and praying in that meeting. And they said, no, it isn't a cult. And, uh, you know, I thought maybe I might even have trouble sticking around because of the very, very long prayer that they said at the beginning of the meeting. I wasn't sure that I could memorize that. You know, I think it's called the serenity prayer. And so, you know, I, uh, I went that weekend, was Memorial Day weekend of 1983. 
and I, it was, there was a big family reunion and I went to my family reunion. Probably not the best place to start your abstinence. I went and I made the mistake of telling him I was on a diet. And all weekend I heard, Joe, can you eat this? Can we make you something special, Joe? We can't make ice cream, Joe can't eat ice cream. And I heard that all weekend long. And what the miracle was, was on Monday, when I left that meeting, that reunion, I had had three moderate meals, no sugar, nothing in between. And since Memorial Day weekend of 1983, I've had three meals a day, nothing in between, no sugar, and later no flour or gluten. And that has been my absence for almost 30, for almost 40 years now. And, you know, it has been a miracle. It has really been a miracle. I think that weekend I took the second step because I realized that there was a power greater than myself that could keep me abstinent, that could keep me to my plan of eating. And so what it was, was I went, I, you know, I took the second step that night, that day. About a month and a half later, I knew that you know, one of the things I'd heard at that first meeting is you're only as sick as your secrets. And I knew that I had to tell the two people that brought me into the program, my deepest, darkest secret, something I had really never told anyone that was a friend or a client or a family or anything else. And uh, we went to lunch and I was going to tell them and I couldn't tell them. By the way, I, I remember later that I did everything important over lunch, dinner or breakfast. So, you know, is that a surprise for a compulsive overeater? Anyway, we were driving back and we were talking about buying the building. And I said, I almost didn't buy the building. And they said, why? And I said, because I'm gay. And Beverly looked at me and said, we know we still love you. That was when I took the third step. That was when I was willing to turn my life and my will over to the care of a God, of a power greater than myself. And no matter what happened, for the first time in my life, I was going to be true to Joe. It was a loving act on my part that I was finally being true to Joe. And I was letting people that were important in my life, and even if they said, screw you, we're leaving you, I didn't care. It was because it was so important to me. Uh, I have stayed abstinent, has not been easy. I have been through many things in my abstinence. I have been through ups and downs with a business. I have been through the death of my father, through the death of my brother, through the death of my mother. I have been, uh, you know, uh, everything else. And it, it has been that I have stayed abstinent because what I did was I learned how to live the steps, not work them, but live them. And that has been what has been really, really important for me is learning to live the steps in everything I do. And this is really where I started to learn about relationships. As I said, when I came into this program, I had no relationships, real, true, intimate, loving relationships. I'm not talking about a partner. I'm talking about any type of relationship where I would let you know who I really was. I was scared to do that because I thought you would leave the room and run away scared and screaming because you knew my secrets. And so the first three or four years, uh, I got in with a group of people. We did a lot of different things. I, it was it was good for me because after the first meeting I went to, uh, the people took me, dragged me because they were driving and I wasn't. They dragged me to coffee afterwards. And so, you know, 
that was my first hint of social social of being socially interactive with another person. It was four or five people. I picked from that group, eventually my first sponsor. I picked the thinnest person I saw because that's what I wanted. You know, uh, I often joke that, you know, I really came into OA to lose a little weight, find a husband, get married and live happily ever after. Unfortunately, I haven't found the husband yet. Yet. So anyway, what it was, was that I, I started to learn how to socialize with people. Those first few years, I was very, very angry until I started to work the steps and get away from my past. I honestly believe that what these steps are about is to become neutral with the past, become neutral with the past so that it does not affect me today. It does not affect me today in my relationships every day. I eventually built a business up where I had eight to 10 employees. This is where I learned really to have relationships. I can have perfect relationships with anybody in the program because I'm going to treat them, you know, in the OA way. But when it comes to people outside the program, which are friends and employees and relatives and everybody that I meet on the street, it's extremely difficult sometimes to do that. And what I realized was, is I realized that I had to start treating my employees. I only had 10, I didn't have 10,000. So I knew them, I knew who their family was, I knew what children they had, I knew their problems. I started to treat them the way that I treated people in the program. I started to listen, which is the hardest thing for me to do in the world, even today. I started to listen to them. Uh, I've had an assistant that works for me for 23 years. That is a long time to have a personal assistant. And she knows everything about me. And I know everything about her. And we get along. We get along. We're still talking to each other after 23 years. In fact, is she texted me today with a problem she was having with her mother. And, you know, I texted her back and forth and listened to her and offered some suggestions. And, you know, that's the type of relationship that we have. And it came about because I worked the program. You know, she is an Al-Anon to the max. Thank God for me. Probably not for her. But it, I, I worked the program with her. And she has, an, a, she has a mother who's a really raging, a raging Al-Anon and a brother who's a raging addict. And, you know, what it used to, what I do is when she, she comes in on Monday morning, I just listen for about 15 minutes. I don't say a word. I just listen. And that is the most important thing that I can do. That is the most important thing I can do to someone I sponsor. Because that's what I, my sponsor, I want her to just listen. So, you know, what it is, is I started to develop the idea of relationships by working with the people outside of the program first my employees and teaching them how to be, how, how teaching, dealing with them the same way I dealt with people within the program. And that can be very hard sometimes. It can be very hard, especially because two or three of my people and my employees were totally and absolutely positively, without a doubt, totally opposite from me politically. 
and we knew what we couldn't discuss with each other. But you know, sometimes I would just listen to them to try to understand why they thought that way. You know, uh, one of the things I heard early on was there's two men talking in AA, and one says to the other, no matter what, I just, what, no matter what somebody else says or does, I just say, you're right. And the guy said, no, you need to stand up. You really need to tell that person what's going on. You need to talk to him about it. And the guy looked at him and said, you know, you're right. And, and if I do that with people in my life, my life is much more peaceful and serene. So, you know, that is where I base my relationships on. I do not believe that God just removes my character defects by me saying, God, remove them. I believe that step six and seven are action steps. I believe that they're action steps. I believe that step six for me is about not doing the things that I want to do. Not doing the things that I want to do. And step seven is about doing the things I don't want to do. And how does this apply to relationships? One is what I usually want to do when somebody's talking to me about their problems is I want to say, well, if you would just, if you would just do this. And what I really need to do is just not say a damn word. And so that's what step seven is, is doing what I don't want to do. And it occurs in many different ways. It occurs with, in many different things. And so, you know, what the relationship of steps in six, seven is about is it, it's about not doing the things that I want to do in relationships, which harms those relationships. Now, I know it's very difficult sometimes. I don't have children. I have I have some friends that have children. And I know that it's very difficult when they're acting out, when they need to go to AA, when they need to go to other sex programs, when they need to, you know, when you're estranged from them. And so what it is, is it's about sometimes just listening, just listening. And so, you know, that's what relationships are about for me is there sometimes they're just about listening and not doing anything else. Now, what is emotional sobriety for me? You know, I got to thinking about this one day because I was talking about emotional sobriety at a meeting. And I'm going to read it letter. There is a letter from Bill Wilson that's in Language of the Heart. That is a book, a letter he wrote on emotional sobriety, which for me was very, very important. But emotional sobriety for me is living the steps, first of all, treating other people with respect and dignity and, and loving them as they are. You know, that's the hardest part, is loving somebody as they are and, you know, accepting them as they are. And so, you know, that is sometimes the most difficult thing to do in relationships. And I have learned how to do that. Uh, now, is it okay to put people out of your life if they abuse you? Of course. Of course it is. I had a friend that I developed just as a friendship. And we went, we went places, we did things. But he had a habit 
of putting me down in such a way that I had put down, been put down all my life. And finally, and he would leave. He would just leave. He'd get in a relationship and he would leave. He'd come back a year later or six months or nine months, and he'd want to start the relationship where we left it. And I did this the next time he came back. And then the third time he came back, I, I accepted it, accepted him. But you know, the fourth time that he came back, what I said to him was, I don't believe that we can have a relationship. Because one, you put me down. I mispronounce words. You always put me down in such a way. I don't like that. I've told you, you continue to do it. You leave when you get in a relationship and you don't continue the relationship. So I don't think that we can be in a relationship. And that was one of the hardest things I ever do because I don't form relationships very easily. I'm an isolator. That's part of, I think, the disease of compulsive overeating for me is I like to isolate. I like to not mix or talk with or be intimate with other people because it scares me. And so what I, and you know, I can put up a false face. I go to lunch, I go to breakfast every Tuesday morning with three, four other people. They're all straight, I'm gay. You know, they'll, they'll joke about the girl running by and I will joke about the man running by and we laugh at each other. And you know, one day something was brought up about somebody killing themselves. And I said, well, you know, I fought depression all my life. I fought clinical depression all my life. I wanted to die many times and they were shocked. But I was being intimate with them. I was letting them know who Joe was. They didn't think anything else about it. We went on. We're still meeting a year later. And what it is about is it's about being true to myself and being true to who I am and loving me for who I am. I heard something a long time ago that really affected me. I heard it in another program that dealt with sex. But it, it really, it, and I'm going to paraphrase it. It says, if I am who I am because of who I am, and you are who you are because of who you are, the relationship will probably work. However, if I am who I am because of who you are, and you are who you are because of who I am, then it probably won't work. And that really is what it's about. It's about being my own person. It's about being who I am and not worrying about what other people think or what other people do. That, that is what it comes down to really that I've learned through step six and seven is to be, you know, one of my character defects, the first character defect I got rid of was compulsive overeating. I, that I think is a character defect. The second one was, when I told somebody I was gay, is I got rid of that fear of being Joe, that fear of being who I was. And I think that we all have our secrets, you know, and, you know, there's, they used to say, when I first came in, they say, if you put 12 people in a, in a row around in a circle in a 12-step meeting, and they all throw their secrets out in the middle of the room, you'll usually take yours back because you don't think it's as bad as everybody else's. And that may be true. And, you know, sometimes the secrets really are, it's strange. I, you know, I was leading a retreat in uh, Lubbock, Texas. 
which is a real small town, very conservative. And uh, we had a four-step basket where everybody put their deepest, darkest secret into this basket in a piece of paper without their name. And then we drew it out and then we talked about it. And I drew one out and it said, you know, I'm so ashamed because at one point I had to prostitute myself to get enough to get food. And there was silence in the room. And this lady who was about 75, dressed in a suit for a retreat, raised her hand and said, you know, that's not mine. But I've been married 50 years. And if you don't think sometimes in that 50 years, I haven't prostituted myself for food, you're crazy. And everybody laughed. And it was because you're only as sick as your secrets. You're only as sick as your secrets. And so what I have to do is I have to get rid of my secrets. I'd like to read now. Uh, I'd like to close at three o'clock for a few minutes to uh, just simply um, uh, have a break. Uh, if some of you youngsters may not understand this, but us old timers have something called going to the bathroom on a regular basis. <laughs> so it, I'm going to share my screen. This is a letter that Bill Wilson wrote. See which one it is. Okay. On emotional sobriety. If you would like to read it afterwards, you can you can Google the letter. It's on it's on the uh, it is on uh, it is uh, on the on the web, and it says the next frontier: emotional sobriety by Bill Wilson. It's also in the book, I believe, Language of the Heart. I think many oldsters who have put the AA, our AA booze cure to severe but successful tests still find that they lack emotional sobriety. Perhaps they will be the next spearhead for the next major development in AA, the development of much more real maturity and balance, which is to say humility in our relationships with ourselves, with our fellows, and with God. Those adolescent urges that so many of us have 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 for top approval, perfect security, and perfect romance, urges quite appropriate to age 17 prove to be impossible way of life when you are at age 47 or 57. Since AA began, I've taken immense wallops in all these areas because of my failure to grow up emotionally and spiritually. My God, how painful it is to keep demanding the impossible and how very painful to discover finally that all along we have had the cart before the horse. Then comes the final agony of seeing how awfully wrong we have been, but still finding ourselves unable to get off the emotional merry-go-round. How to translate a right mental conviction into a right emotional result, and so into easy, happy, and good living. Well, that's not only the neurotics problem, it's a problem of life itself for all of us who have got to the point of real willingness to hew the right principles in all our affairs. Even then, as we hew away, peace and joy may still elude us. That's the place so many of us AA Osters have come to. And it's a hell of a spot, literally. How shall we outshout our unconscious from which so many of our fears, compulsions, and phony aspirations still scream, brought into line what we actually believe, know, and want? How to convince our dumb, raging, and hidden Mr. Hyde become our main task. How to convince our ra dumb, raging, and hidden Mr. Hyde become our main task. I have recently come to believe that this can be achieved. I believe so because I began to see 
many belighted ones, folks like you and me, commencing to get results. Last autumn, several years back, depression, having no really rational cause at all, almost took me to the cleaners. I began to be scared that I was in for another long chronic spell. Considering the grief I've had with depressions, it wasn't a bright prospect. I kept asking myself, why can't the 12 steps work to release depression? By the hour, I stared at the St. Francis prayer. It's better to be to comfort than to be comfort, comforted. Here was the formula right, but why didn't it work? Suddenly realized what the matter was. My basic flaw had always been dependence, almost absolute dependence on people or circumstances to supply me with prestige, security, and the like. Failing to get these things according to my perfectionistic dreams and specifications, I had fought for them. And when defeat came, so did my depression. There wasn't a chance of making the ungoing love of St. Francis a workable and joyous way of life until these fatal and absolute dependencies were cut away. Because I had over the years undergone a little spiritual development, the absolute quality of these frightful dependencies had never before been star so starkly revealed. Reinforced by what grace I could secure in prayer, I found that I had to exert every ounce of will and action to cut off these faulty emotional dependencies upon people, upon AA, indeed upon any set of circumstances, whatever. Then only could I be free to love as Francis had. Emotional and instinctual satisfactions I saw were really the extra dividends of having love, offering love, and expressing a love appropriate to each relationship of life. Plainly, I could not avail myself of God's love unless I was able to offer it back to him by loving others as he would have me. I couldn't possibly do that so long as I was victimized by false dependency. For my dependency meant demand, a demand for the possession and control of people and the conditions surrounding me. What those words absolutely demand may look like, while well, those words absolute demand may look like a gimmick, they were the ones that helped trigger my release into my present degree of stability and quietness of mind, qualities which I am now trying to consolidate by offering love to others, regardless of the return to me. This seems to be a primary healing circuit, an ongoing love of God's creation and his people by means of which we avail ourselves of his love for us. It is most clear that the current can't flow until our paralyzing dependencies are broken and broken at depth. Only then can we possibly have a glimmer of what adult love really is. Spiritual calculus, you say? Not a bit. Watch any of the AA of 12 months working with a new 12-step case. If the case says to the devil with you, the 12-stepper only smiles and turns to another case. He doesn't feel just frustrated or rejected. If his next case responds and in turn starts to give love and attention to other alcoholics, yet gives back none to him, the sponsor is happy about it anyway. He still doesn't feel rejected. Instead, he rejoices that his one-time prospect is sober and happy. And if his next following case turns out later in time to be his best friend or romance, then the sponsor is most joyful. But he well knows that his happiness is a byproduct the extra dividend of giving without any demand for a return. The really stabilizing for him was having and offering love to that strange drunk on his doorstep. 
that was Francis at work, powerful and practical, minus dependency and minus demand. In the first six months of my sobriety, I worked hard with many alcoholics. Not one responded. Yet this work kept me sober. It wasn't a question of those alcoholics giving me anything. My stability came out of trying to give, not out of trying demand, not out of demanding that I receive. Thus, I think I can work out with emotion that I can work out with emotional sobriety. If we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root of it some healthy dependency, unhealthy dependency, and its consequent unhealthy demand. Let us, with God's help, continually surrendering surrender these hobbling demands. Then we can be set free to live and love. We may be able to 12-step ourselves and others into emotional sobriety. Of course, I haven't offered you a really new idea, only a gimmick that has started to unlook, unhook several of my own hexes at depth, at depth. Nowadays, my brain no longer races compulsively in either elation or grandiosity or depression. I have been given a quiet place in bright sunshine. And so, you know, um, one of the things I'm going to go down here and I'll close. It's 3.50. We'll start again at, at four o'clock. I mean, well, it's it's uh, it's 3.50 Houston time. It's 1.50 California time. I want to read the 11th step prayer. Lord, make me a channel of thy peace that where there is hatred, I may bring love that where there is wrong. I may bring a spirit of forgiveness that where there is discord, I may bring harmony. That where there is effort, I may bring truth. That where there is doubt, I may bring faith. That where there is despair, I may bring hope. That where there are shadows, I may bring light. That where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgetting that one finds. It is by forgiving that one is forgiven. It is by dying that one awakens to internal love, you know, and I think that for me, that is what is very, very important. And I would like I'm putting some questions on the screen right now. And I hope that you would uh, let me copy them and I'll put them in. I'll send them to the to the person. And if we can uh, put them in the chat place. Okay. And I would just like for you to think about these. Do you have intimate relationships in your life today? How have your character defects impacted these relationships? What does emotional sobriety and abstinence mean to you? What character defects are you unwilling to give up right now? Why? Why? What character defects are you willing to give up right now? Why? Is it okay to put someone out of your life if they constantly abuse you in any way, even though you have asked them to stop? I would like for you to think about these for the next 10 minutes, then we will start again. And I will open it for a discussion for a while before I discover, discuss some other aspects of emotional sobriety that are important to me. So uh, let's close with a serenity prayer and then uh, we will reopen. It will be at uh, in 10 minutes. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, 
and the wisdom to know the difference. Keep coming back. It works if you work it and you're worth it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. As Joe said, we'll come back in 10 minutes. And um, if we want to stop the recording right now, we can stop the recording for the 10 minutes. Is there anyone who'd like to comment on comment on these or uh, have uh, answer these? I'll be open to it. It's up to you. Just unmute and talk to us. They actually need to raise their hands under reactions. Um, raise your hand under reactions and then we will unmute you or let you unmute. Nobody? Shake your hands or do something like that. <laughs> okay. Very good. Okay. Let's let's talk about emotional sobriety. And um part of emotional sobriety for me has been, uh, and this is a little bit into steps eight and nine, is the person that I had to make the most amends to was myself. I had done more harm to me than to anyone else. And that was through my actions and what I did, who I saw, what I tried to do, everything like that. Uh, it was all actions which harmed me either spiritually, emotionally, or physically. And uh, I was just I was just a real mess when I came in to uh, to Overeaters Anonymous. Probably I think there's one person that was here when I came in, if I remember right, and uh, <laughs> he probably doesn't remember me. But you know, I was a mess. I was an absolute mess. I was slowly destroying a business that I had been building up for for seven years. I was destroying it because I was procrastinating. Uh, I wasn't, I was doing a lot of different things. One of my assistants one time said, you know, your clothes look like you slept in them. And I thought to myself, well, that's probably because I did. And, you know, uh, I wasn't taking baths on a regular basis. I wasn't taking care of myself physically. I was not, uh, you know, I had had, a, I had bought a brand new house in 1981 and I still didn't have furniture because it wasn't the perfect furniture, you know, and I thought that I had to do everything perfectly. And I couldn't, unfortunately. And so, you know, what I did is I did nothing, you know, and I, you know, uh, I used to joke. I used to clean my bathroom once a year when mother came. But otherwise, you know, I didn't need to. Uh, I changed my sheets on a quarterly basis, whether they needed it or not. Uh, I had a maid who once commented that, you know, you have more underwear than any other person I've ever seen. And, you know, I thought, well, I just go buy new underwear rather than do the washing. You know, it's a, it's really hard to throw it into the washer that's downstairs. And so, you know, I was a mess, not only physically, but I think emotionally in taking care of Joe. And, you know, the first act that I did to take, as I said, to take care of Joe was to get abstinent with a plan of eating. That was the most important thing that I ever did in my life. And for quite a few years in this program, when anybody would say, oh, abstinence is the most important thing in my life without exception, I would think, you fool. That's crazy. And yet I came today to believe it, that it is the most important thing in my life without exception. Abstinence and following a plan of eating. Because if I'm binging my head off, I lose everything I have gained up to this point. 
you know, I have, I lose everything that I had gained as far as emotional, physical, and spiritual growth. So what I had to do was I really had to literally make it the most important thing. Part of that was a plan of eating. That is a part of step six and seven, because as I mentioned to you before, one of the things that I believe is steps that overeating is a character defect. A character asset would be eating healthy for your body. What I had to do when I came in was I had to make my goal weight what I weigh today. I had to make my goal weight what I weigh today if I'm eating healthy for my body. If I'm overweight, I'm eating to bring it down to a healthy weight. If I'm underweight, I'm bringing it up to eat at a healthy weight. And if I'm at a healthy weight, I'm eating to maintain that healthy weight. And that has been real, real important to me. The other thing was my abstinence has never, my plan of eating has never been perfect in 39 years. I make mistakes. But what I do is they've never been major mistakes like eating sugar intentionally. But I have, what I do is if I mess up, if I think I ate a little bit too much at a meal, or I, I know I ate too much at a meal, or something like that, then what I do is I go, I tell and tell my sponsors that I go to the next meal, don't eat, go to the next meal, and make it the best meal that I've ever had abstinent. Get started immediately. Roseanne, our founder, started the program in 1960. She, she is quite vocal about it. She never left the program, but she got her last abstinence in 1986. That was 26 years after she started the program. She was the perfect founder. Bill Wilson never drank again. Dr. Bob actually did. I think he had one beer. But she was the perfect founder because what she says to me is that I never quit coming. I kept trying. I kept working at it. And I, you know, I stayed, abs I got my abstinence and she died with her last abstinence. And so that's real, real important to me is staying on the absent. You know, I, I traveled when I first came into the program, I was traveling three to four weeks a month. And, you know, uh, it was hard to stay in touch. I went to meetings in out of town places, but, you know, food got real crazy. And at some points, and, but, you know, what I found was I can go into any restaurant and I can find something that is on my plan of eating. Now, it's sometimes difficult. I was visiting a friend in, in Israel, uh, Holda, and she took me to a restaurant the first night. And I said, God, I love this restaurant, Holda. Hold, hold, and she said, why? And I said, well, because they put the desserts first. And she said, Joe, in Hebrew, we read from right to left, not left to right. And I said, I don't care. I still like it. And so, you know, that was kind of funny, you know, and uh, what I also try to do is I am friends with two people in AA. They're not in, in program and they're foodies and they like to go to expensive restaurants. When I go to a restaurant, I look today, I'm lucky enough. I can look at the menu and I can make a commitment to what I'm going to eat before I go to that restaurant, something that is abstinent for me. And, you know, uh, 
I was in Dubai uh, last year, a year ago, and uh, I went to a restaurant. They want to take me to a restaurant. It was a tasting menu. It was $415. And, uh, 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 and you know what? I told them that I needed sugar-free, abstinent, uh, gluten-free food. And they made it. It was seven courses, but I only ate a little bit of each course to eat the proper amount for what I would normally eat in my plan of eating. Because abstinence has to be the most important thing in my life without exception, because I lose everything if I don't have that. And so, you know, part of that is my plan of eating, is having a plan of eating. Mine is old fashioned. I, I you know, I, um, it's three meals a day, nothing in between, one day at a time, no white flour, gluten, or sugar. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, I've had a piece of bread when I got a, a fishbone caught in my throat because that's what you do to get fishbone out of your throat. So, you know, and that was taking care of Joe, you know, and I've been places and done things where sometimes, uh, you know, it was not the best choice, but it was the only choice I could make. And I needed something to nourish my body. And what I've had to do is make food to nourish my body, nourish my body. And so that's what's real, real important. Uh, one time, uh, you know, a kind of a, I, you know, I'm intimate with everybody. And so, you know, I'd let everybody know. Now, clients don't know that I, you know, when they ask to go get food at night or at a meeting or, or something, I say, well, I'm gluten-free, sugar-free. It's a lot easier now rather than back when gluten wasn't such a big thing. And one night I was having uh, food at a client's and they ordered pizza and I said, I need a salad. And I was ordering salad and I, the salad was real small. So I was going to take the topping off the pizza to put on the salad. And I reached over and grabbed the piece and I was pulling it back. And my assistant yelled out, no. And everybody looked at him and looked at me and I did it off and put the pizza back. And they said, what's up? And I said, oh, it's just a private joke between us. But it was taking care of myself. It was taking care of Joe. A character defect is not taking care of Joe. A character defect is not staying on my plan of eating. A character defect is eating wrong for my body. And you know, again, my goal weight is what I weigh today. And that is important if I'm eating to be healthy for my body. That's what's really, really important. Now, as I told you, the other character defect was not taking care of myself in such a way, like I mentioned, you know, not cleaning the bathroom, not doing the sheets, you know, things like that. When I came into the program, almost immediately, about a year afterwards, I started to buy furniture. I started, I hired a maid because I traveled so much. I started to have clean clothes. I started to have, you know, do the things that normal people do to take care of themselves. Normal people do these things to take care of themselves. And that was what's real, real important is to take care of yourself. And so, you know, and, and whatever it is happening, just, you know, and it's hard sometimes, you know, it's harder than hell to stay abstinent and stay sober and stay on your plan of eating. You know, today I, I said I never weigh and measure, but, you know, this morning I measured out my cereal. Uh, I measured out my toppings. I, I poured milk uh, to a certain level on my bowl, which I do every morning. Uh, when I finish this, I'm going to go and I, I have chicken in the freezer that I will pull out and I will have chicken that is a certain amount of chicken 
I will have a certain amount of other things and I will take care of take care of that. That's that's what's really important is and I do weigh and measure. And I even when I go to a restaurant, I don't take a scales. I never have, but I do measure. Uh, when I go to a store today, I take I buy a steak or chicken. If I buy a steak, it usually they for some reason they make steaks now. You can't buy anything smaller than about 12 ounces. I cut it in half. I have two six ounce pieces. I have two meals. So that's what I do. And it's real, real important. If I'm having trouble with my food, it isn't about the food. If I'm having trouble with my food, it's about something that is going on in my life that I don't want to deal with. You know, I used to say that my biggest problems in life were men, mama, and money because those were three big problems for me. Today, what my problems are, since my mother has passed away, is finance and romance. Those are the two big things for me that cause me problems. And when those two things are not, are causing me problems, the first thing that I wanna turn to is the food. And that's when I need to talk about it. Also a part of emotional sobriety is what I heard in that first meeting. You're only as sick as your secrets. My secrets today are not what happened in the past. Unfortunately or unfortunately, there's a lot of tapes out there with my story on them. And what it is, is my secrets today are like yesterday, there was a damn driver that was tailgating me at 60 miles an hour. Now, what I wanted to do was slam on my brakes. What I did was, this is six and seven, is I moved over to the other lane. But I got really angry at that. That's a secret. Anytime I'm rejected by somebody or that I'm, I think that I have been rejected or something doesn't go right on a job or something doesn't go right in a relationship, or I ask somebody to go to dinner and they say, no, I can't go, or something like that. It brings up feelings. And my feelings are my secrets today. My feelings are my secrets today. And that's what I need to talk about. That's what I need to deal with. And that's what I need to get out of me. Because my secrets will kill me. They will literally kill me. And so what I have to do is I have to get rid of my secrets. And I, I really believe that that is a part of, a part of, part of what's, what life is about in, in the 12-step program is that we're getting rid of our secrets on a regular basis. Uh, I'm going to share my screen real quick. Let's see, I think this is it. Nope. Sorry, wrong one. Let me get rid of that. Share screen. Okay. And I think this is real important. I was going through step six and seven. Um, and it is, we are comfortable with our old wise ways of thinking and acting, even though we know they are harmful. We have no idea what life would look like or how we would handle feelings without them, because we've never known how to cope with life in any 
other way. We admit that our old ways of relating to people have caused pain and we want to let go of them, but how will we act? In honestly facing step six, we confront the fear that our defects are like threads woven into the very fabric of our being. If God removes them, we feel we will surely unravel. As we began to recover in a way, we could see how compulsive eating had caused us to be obsessed with ourselves and our status. Humiliated by our inability to control our intake of food and by the devastating consequences of compulsive eating behaviors, we fought for self-esteem with all our might. As our disease progressed and our compulsive eating worsened, our self-esteem fell progressively lower and we fought harder, even harder to boister it by gaining whatever mastery we could over our fellow beings. Whatever mastery we could, we could over our fellow beings. In our self-absorbance, we became status seekers in one way or another, primarily concerned with getting our own way and the recognition we craved. We tried openly or secretly to place ourselves above other people, openly to disprove our own feelings of inadequacy. In OA, we discovered that our humility is a simply an awareness of who we really are today and a willingness to become all that we can be. Real humility about our character defects comes with it, comes, carries with it acceptance. We accept that each defect, as painful it is, as it is may be, is a part of who we are. With humble acceptance, we can quietly say to our higher power, I am this way, and only with your help can I change. And while, we, while that is true, then the other thing is we have, it's an action. We have to just not do what we want to do sometimes. You know, self-esteem was always a big fault of mine. Uh, I was looking at some writing I was doing the other night. And one of my clients early on, I was, I, early on in my business, I was so busy, I couldn't see straight. I was working 14 hours a day, seven days a week. And I wondered why people used me, you know, because I was a terrible, I'm a photographer artist. I'm a terrible photographer artist. Why would they do it? I went to a Christmas party with one of my big clients who was an architect for one of the biggest firms in the United States. And he said in front of me to his client, he says, I hope Joe never finds out how good he is because it's going to cost me a lot more money. And I kind of laughed at that. But you know what I, in evaluating it years later, what I realized was that when I came into this program, I was very envious of people who had low self-esteem. I was very envious of people who had low self-esteem because I had no self-esteem. I thought I was a terrible person. I thought that I was a terrible photographer. I thought that I was a terrible artist. You know, how has that changed? What has happened to get rid of that uh character defect of thinking that I'm a piece of shit, pardon the language, a piece of shit, was I had to start working. First of all, I had to work the steps, all of the steps. Second, I had to take a look at who I was as a person and where I wanted to be, and then try to become the person that I thought I should be in God's eyes, a person of integrity, of tolerance, patience, and love. I had to work on those things. 
I had to start treating people right. I had to start to work on myself. It's an inside job. It's not an outside job. I have been thin. In the program, I was much thinner than I was. Richard has seen me much, much thinner. I was anorexic because I went from very heavy to anorexic. And I had to do the thing in Overeaters Anonymous that is the hardest thing you can do, which is to gain weight. Overeaters Anonymous. But I had to come back up to a healthy weight. And that was part of my self-esteem. I, you know, I was sitting in a meeting one time, looking around the room and 125 people, there were big meetings in. I said, God, I'm the thinnest person in the room. I'm the wellest person in the room. And then I thought for a minute and I laughed and thought, oh God, I'm the sickest person in the room. And so, you know, what I have to do is I have to, I had to first understand what being well was about. And being well for me today is treating people right, doing service, having integrity, be having a balanced life. For me, it's also being very creative as an artist. And it's realizing is that sometimes my dreams will come true, but they will never have the result that I thought that they would have. I always thought that, you know, as an artist, if I just had a gallery show, it would be, I, everything would be perfect. Well, I had a gallery show and it wasn't perfect. I thought if I just get stuff in the museum, it would be, everything would be perfect. I got things in the museum and they weren't perfect. And what I realized was that what the road to me for recovery was, was not getting the dream, but it was the road that I, that I went to to get the dream whether the dream came true or didn't come through. You know, today at, I'm 78 years old. I'm still very active. I'm working on a daily basis, not quite as active as I used to be. Uh, four years ago, I started to do, three years ago, I started to do sculpture classes, a completely different media for me. I'll go Tuesday night to my sculpture class. I will create sculptures, something I always dreamed about as a kid. You know, I wanted to be an artist as a kid. And my dad said to me, you know, um, Basically, you know, real men are not artists. And so I carried that through and I didn't become an artist till later in life. And, you know, he also said, you know, security is more important than anything, including happiness. Well, I have found out that security sometimes is not more important than happiness. And so what I've, I've done as part of that is in sobriety is I've had to unlearn the lessons that I got as a child. I had to unlearn those lessons. And I had to become neutral with the past so that I could live today in a completely different life than I had led before. Today, I'm an artist. I'm recognized as an artist, you know, and, uh, you know, and so what it is, is that that is what I do, you know, that is what I do for a living. And I'm very successful at it. And so, you know, also, too, is I'm not, I don't base my self-esteem on my successes in, in, in art. I base my success on how I feel about Joe on a daily basis. How do I feel about Joe on a daily basis? My first sponsor, Jeff F., uh, who I picked because he was the thinnest person in the room. Of course, he was, I think, anorexic. But anyway, uh, he first had me get in front of a mirror at night, nude, and find five things that I loved about my body. That is extremely difficult. Very, very difficult. 
to do at that time. 39 years later, I'm still getting in front of a mirror in the morning and finding things that I love about my body. You know, I, uh, about, oh, I would say five years ago or six years ago, uh, I did a very cathartic thing for me as an artist, photographer, that type of thing. Uh, what I did was, is that I decided that I needed to do a series of self-portraits. And I needed to do those self-portraits nude. Now, it was, it was for me, it was something that was very scary to take, to take pictures of myself nude. And so, you know, what I did was I just went ahead and I did it. I did it because even though it was scary, it was, it was something that I needed to do. And I'm going to show you a picture that, um, let me find something, just a second. Uh, share screen. And what it was, was I did a series of nude self-portraits. And what it was, is I did writing also with them. And, you know, and, and what it is, is this is one of my writings, which was about the past. It says, old is fear, young is fear. What lessons must I learn as old is so painful in my mind from lost dreams and missed fantasies, wishing that I had just. When I touch my body and feel the reality of today and wish for yesterday, something happened. I don't know if somebody wishing, feel the reality of today and wish for yesterday that will never return. Only the fear of the future returns. And so what it is, is this is a series of images of me nude. And why I did it was I wanted to learn my, to love my body exactly the way it was. Not the way I want it to be which is to probably look like Tom Cruise, but the way that it was, the way that it is, the way that I can't change it, you know? Uh, and so what I did was I did this series of nude portraits. I didn't show them to anyone for a while. And then I came back and I started to show them to people and I wanted to see what their reactions was. And I've even showed them to clients and they all found that they were lovely that they were important images. Uh, I'm getting ready to hopefully have a show with them sometime soon. And because what it is, is it's about not being afraid to let people know who I really am. It started with my sponsor. Then it started with the, with the two people that brought me in the program. Then it started with my sponsor. And then it started with the people in my support group. Then it started, at, with, at a, a higher level at region. Then it started at a higher level at, uh, uh, you know, world service is to let them know who I am, what I feel, what I look like, what, what I'm thinking of. This is what it's about. Now, what the hell does this have to relationships? I have to have a relationship with myself before I can have true intimate relationships for me with, before I can have true intimate relationships with anybody else. 
I have to have that relationship with myself. Because if I don't have that relationship with myself and I don't love myself, then what it is, is I'm afraid to let other people know who I am. You know, I'm talking about things today that, you know, 39 years ago, you would have never heard me to talk about. But because I'm comfortable with Joe, then I don't care what you think. You know, I spoke about being gay at, the, at an OA convention, probably in about 1984, I think it was. And I got up before 500 people. It was a large convention. And I talked about being gay. And a man came up to me afterwards and said, you know, basically, we have our meetings, you have your meetings, why don't you stay out of our meetings? And I was devastated because, you know, I had for the first time really been myself. And I went to uh, the speaker that time. I had enough know what with all to go to this main speaker that who was Daphne. And I talked to Daphne about it. And she had some very sage words about people like that. Words that I remember today because they were full of wisdom and everything. And she said, you know, fuck them. You belong here. And so, you know, it, it is about, you know, you can't throw me out. But what it was, was be your true self and don't care what anybody else says or does. And if they don't like it, put them out of your life. By the way, I've never seen that man before. I know he was from uh, the Woodlands, which was a very, is a very conservative area. And uh, uh, so, you know, but, but what it is, is I was myself, I was hurt, I was rejected, and I talked to someone about it. I was having an intimate relationship with Daphne about what I was feeling. Before program, I would have been at the nearest bakery or the nearest bar. But I used the program and the tools of the program in order to not do that, to not do that. Um, God, I never thought I was going to show the nude self-portraits here. That's amazing. Anyway, one of them anyway. So, you know, what it is, is it, you know, I'm not afraid today to do it. I'm just not afraid. And, you know, uh, that is what is really, really important. I was one of my clients the other day, and she asked about a sculpture I did, which is very autobiographical about me growing up gay in Oklahoma. And uh, she said, what is this story? I, I, she was here to look at some other art for, uh, uh, for an installation I'm doing in one of her buildings. And she said, what is this about? I'm just curious. And I explained to her. And she said, wow. You know, and she's still speaking to me. She's still sending me work. I knew she was gay friendly I, because she, she's an architect. And if you're not an architect and not gay friendly, then you have a very small clientele. Anyway, uh, what it is, is I was being true to Joe. And I really didn't care whether whatever happened, happened. And it's about being intimate. Of course, you have to be very, very careful. My first fourth step, which I was talking about, uh, the guy I gave it to was not in OA. He was in uh, AA. I was sober by that time. And he was a spiritual guru. And I wanted that spirituality in my fourth and fifth step. And I gave it away to him. And I came away on a real high. It was the best that I have ever felt in my life. And I, uh, I really felt high. And he had some uh, really good things, especially to, 
to say about me being molested by my uncle when I was 11 years old, which was a turning point in my life, that and the uh, emotional sexual abuse by my grandmother. The problem was, is four months later, he went out and molested an 11-year-old boy. And the anger that came up for me was so great that I thought I was going to eat and drink. Instead, what I did was I worked the program. I worked the program. I talked to my sponsor. I talked to the two people that brought me in the program. I did another fourth and fifth step, which he was very heavy on. And I came away from that fifth step feeling the same way that I did on the first one. It was because when things like this come up, sometimes they're because of my own character defects or the character defects of others. But the program gives me a way to deal with those. It gives me a way to deal with those. If I'm willing to feel the feelings, not feeling my feelings is a character defect. Not feeling my feelings is a character defect for me. And so what I need to do is I need to feel my feelings. And that is hard because I was learned how to deal with my feelings by my mother, eat some cookies and drink some milk. And that's the way that I felt about it. That's the way that I dealt with it. And you know what the lesson I learned from that, and I try to learn lessons from every time something like this comes up. And I learned a very, very important lesson. The sickest people in the world are in these rooms. The sickest people in the world are in these rooms and not all of them are in recovery. And that's what I have to remember. And I take care of myself by not, you know, knowing when and where and what to talk about and in the early days and feel safe about it. Now, something I don't talk about very much, a character defect, low self-esteem. <laughs> Every organization that I was ever in, I had to be the president of in order to feel good about myself. Because I thought if I was president, I would feel better about myself on the inside. Of course, I never did. I got into service very early. I went to region, I went to world service, uh, I started doing service. I think in a way I wanted to be president of OA. I became a trustee. Uh, and by the way, when I became trustee, I had gained a little bit of humility by that time. I didn't tell anybody in Houston I became trustee. They found out through the representative. Then I became chairman of the board. I became president of OA. And I didn't tell anybody. Because by that time, I wasn't doing it about feeling better about myself. I was doing it because I wanted OA to be here for other people. And what I had done was turn one of my character defects into one of my, a character asset. By giving service, what I do, the people that started this OA rise, the people that were here early, they're giving service because they want OA to be here for the person that comes into Overeaters Anonymous, the new person. And so it's very important to keep the rooms open. It made me also become very, when I started to do service at Region and uh, World Service, 
it also made me pay attention to the traditions. And the traditions are very, very important. Uh, for me, of course, the, the main tradition that I love is the third tradition, which is the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. And that came about in AA because as Bill Wilson said in one of his talks was, it came about because a sexual pervert wanted to join over Alcoholics Anonymous. It happened to be a black gay drag queen. And there was a big controversy because back in 1936, it was not chic to be a, a gay black drag queen. And so uh, they had a vote of the first hundred alcoholics. And they came to a vote and just, they were gonna vote whether to admit him to AA or not. And they took, and Bill, Will, uh, Dr. Bob, just before the vote said, what would the maker do? What would the maker, what would God do? And they voted that the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop doing whatever you're doing to harm your body. And that's the way the third tradition came about. But the other traditions have been equally important to me. You know, uh, group conscience, you know, I have intimate relationships with people I can't stand as far as what they think, how things should be run. But what it was, was the group conscience said it should be done their way. And so what I do it is I do it their way. If I disagree, I go start a new meeting. You know, that's one of the most important things. I have been on radio. I have never been on TV. I always use a fake name. Uh, and I use a fake name and because I, of anonymity. Uh, Roseanne, uh, I have a videotape, which you guys probably should play sometime. It's 40 minutes long. And she tells the story of the starting of OA and her own struggles with food. And in that, she talks about that she only broke her anonymity one time. And that was in the early days, I think six months after, the, nine months after the program started, she was on a TV program in uh, Los Angeles and she was full face, her and one other person because they were thin and she wanted to see, show people that the program worked and the program insisted that at least some of the people. She never again showed her name, her last name or showed her face. Anonymity is very important. And it's important for me because, you know, in AA there's a lot of, in, in OA too, I can think a couple of people that said, oh, I'm in a way, I've lost all this weight. And then they've either got drunk or they stayed, got heavy again. And somebody looks at that and says, well, they were in a way and that won't work. So it's important for anonymity. And it's a character defect of mine to want to be full face on TV and say, oh, how great I'm in, you know? And I can't do that. I can't do that because of anonymity is a spiritual foundation of this program. So what I have to do is turn my away from the character defect of ego and self-centeredness to humility. And that's what's really important. So, you know, the traditions are wrapped up in step six and seven for me. They're very, very important. And whenever I wanna do something that I know is against God or against integrity or against tolerance or against loving, I have to look at what character defect I am wanting to do because I'm not feeling comfortable with Joe. And I think that that is real important. And so what it is, it's constantly turning my character defects and saying, what will the opposite of this be 
that I can act upon. It's like the guy said, you're right. You know, it's it's not trying to correct somebody, but it's trying to, you know, let them be who they are. And hopefully they will let you be who you are. And again, it's it's that important part of the program. It's living the steps, you know, and that is the key to intimate relationships. Uh, and, you know, I have a lot of intimate relationships. There's at least three people on this program that I see, four people. They know pretty well everything there is at this meeting. They know pretty well everything there is to know me about me. And I know at least one or two of them have seen me at my worst. And a couple of them have seen me at my best. And today, I hope they only see me at my best. So, you know, it is important that how I act on a daily basis. Uh, I will say that the one character defect that I am trying very hard to break right now, it may be one of the last ones, is getting angry and mad at people who drive too slow in front of me and too fast in back of me. And I can scream and yell at myself. Now, I don't try to give them the finger anymore. I don't try to slam on my brakes because unfortunately in Texas, we have an open carry law and there have been a lot of shootings for road rage. So what I try to do is in either of those situations, if there's another lane, I just pull over, you know, and try to not show them my old behavior. And that's another thing with relationships is not showing people my old behavior. Uh, one of my best friends is, um, is Vietnamese and he was an assistant with me. I hired him when he was basically just here in the country for the first time. And I, um, we became good friends. And one time I hurt him very much by one of my anger fits before program uh, or maybe even after program. And so what it is, is that uh, I, uh, I became very good friends. I started to treat him right. I tried, I started to treat him like a real person instead of an employee. He finally left me, became very rich. And, you know, at his wedding, his wife, who I knew, asked me to lead her down the aisle because I was a type of person that she wanted as a father. Her own father was dead. That was a great honor for me. That was something that was really, really important to me. And it was because I treated them both as equals. That's another character defect. Like I read earlier, I treated either people, I was either a doormat or I was an egotistical maniac. And so what it was, you know, I was, I was that. They also knew I was gay. And since I was a photographer, she grabbed, she had someone grab me with a camera and said, I want pictures in the dressing room of us dressing. So I went in and shot pictures, all her bridesmaid in her dressing, which was an honor. But you know, that's the type of thing that is important to me today. That is the important thing in my life is relationships like that. Intimate personal relationships, both in the program and out of the program. You know, uh, the, you know, and I think that, you know, that is, that is what six and seven is all about for me. That's why I say that, you know, 39 years later, I'm still working on them. Because unfortunately, even though God removed them for a while, sometimes they come back. Sometimes they come back.
and especially when I get into the dis-ease of the disease, which means I'm dis-ease in dis-ease of myself, that I'm not really comfortable with Joe. And you know, one of the things, one of the things that I fought, and I mentioned it before, is perfectionism. I'm never going to be perfect. And why I try to talk with sponsees and sponsors and when I share at meetings is I try to show that I'm not perfect. I hate it when people, you know, they hear me talk and they want me to be their sponsor because I'm perfect. Well, I'm not perfect. I never will be perfect. But what I can do is I can let you know that I'm not perfect. And when I don't know something, say to somebody, I have no idea. I had someone come to me recently talking about their relationship with their wife. And I listened to them for about 15 minutes and they say, what, what, did, what do you think I should do? And I said, I have no idea. I've never had a wife. I've never had a husband. Fine, let me, give you, let me have you give you some numbers of people that have been in relationships like that. And you can talk to them about this problem. I was willing to listen. But I was also willing to say, I have no idea. I have no idea how to handle this. And I think that that's what's important. And everything like this is, you know, I don't think step six and seven are in the middle of the steps by accident. I think they were put there because they allow us to really look at ourselves more and more. I keep coming back to them. You know, I work the steps either way, but it's always about the middle. And maybe it's it, maybe they're in the middle because it reminds me that I need to be in the middle of Overeaters Anonymous in order to stay in the program. I need to be in the middle of the boat because as I say, if I'm in the middle of the boat, I will not fall off. And so what it is, is I stay in the middle. And by working steps six and seven, then what is happening is I'm staying in the middle of the boat. I'm in the middle of the boat. And that is very, very important to me. Uh, it is now, I've been talking way too long, probably. It's 4.50 or 150 and 2.50 in the East Coast, West Coast, and 3.50 in the West Coast. We'll take, take another 10-minute break and then we'll come back. I would just like for you to think about how your character defects have affected the intimate relationships or lack of intimate relationships in your life? How have your character defects affected the intimate relationships or the lack of intimate relationships in your life? Thank you very much. If we could stop the recording, we'll take a 10-minute break. Okay. Hi, everybody. Um, glad to have everybody back. Um, we're just going to do, um, we're just going to talk about the seventh tradition for a minute. So before we resume um, doing the meeting, just like to take a brief moment to observe um, the seventh tradition and pass the virtual seventh tradition basket. And so what I am also going to do right here is um, share, uh, share my screen real quick here. And then I have to pick the correct one. 
Mm. Let's see what what is what is happening with me. Do you want me to share, Cask? Yes, please. You have it easy right there. What I did wrong there. No worries. According to our seventh tradition, we are self-supporting through our own contributions. Should we happen to receive contributions in excess of our expenses, they'll be sent directly to the World Service Office. Jan is sharing the screen. Um, can we can we see the screen? Yep, there we go. So I'm going to turn it over to Jan for just a sec. She's going to explain what our website looks like. So it's real easy to contribute. You can just click on the contribute button and you get an option of any amount you want to put in. You can donate with PayPal or with a debit or credit card. In Canada, we can only donate with a credit card. Um, and it's very easy. Um, and the other thing on our site is that um, if you haven't, already seen it. We've got a, a link here to get you into the meeting. We list our upcoming meetings on here. And um, if you're interested in uh, becoming a volunteer, then there's more information down here on meeting helpers and a volunteer form. Um, also, if you uh, know of somebody or if you yourself would like to be a speaker for one of our Sundays, you can click there as well. Um, or you can just send an email to oarise.info at oarise.org and it'll go into our email, which is now working after six months of not working. It is, we actually receive messages now. So is there anything else you wanted me to say? Um, the podcast, maybe? Oh, yes. Um, there's also a link to our podcasts uh we've had as was shared at the, earlier in the meeting i think we've had over 85 listens to our podcast uh recordings of the meetings that have happened so you can access the the podcast through this button or you can click on view the files and just click what you want to download um lots of good stuff from our speakers as you've heard today and you'll hear in our past recordings Awesome. Thank you, Jan. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. So the options for donating, we put, we put in the chat also the info's there so you can um, uh, copy and paste that or write that down real quick, oerise.org. And um, we thank everybody for your contributions to keep OERISE going. And then we will turn it back over to, um, to Joe. Thank, Thank you. you. <clears throat> well, I'm a little talked out. So uh, <laughs> now I would like to hear from some of you about that question that I asked before about uh, how your character defects are impacting your intimate relationships or your lack of intimate relationships. If we don't hear from somebody, we'll have a meditation for 30 minutes. I'll say uh, my paranoia, but I cleared it up. I cleared it up so that it worked out, you know, and she apologized for her part too. And sometimes uh, 
being uh, codependent, but I'm working on that too. Um, and I'm thankful my daughter's out of the house because it was too small of a place. And I had gained 19 pounds back. I'd lost 50 during the pandemic. And I gained 19 pounds because she was very stressful to live with. She had, she's disabled and uh, she, she kept repeating things that were very upsetting. And um, anyhow, um, I, uh, yeah, I don't have bench foods in the house either. So um, I'm working out of a workbook, the 12 by 12 to write, write, you know, to, so Jenny gave me that. So I'm writing, doing that because I have a real hard time writing to make it help me. I, I write gratitude lists. And I know if you focus on gratitude, you get more good things back. And um, so whatever you focus on grows and uh, just volunteering more and leading meetings every week to be a service and uh, to get out of self. And uh, so very, very thankful. Bless you, you're important. Thank you, Julie, appreciate it. I think Marsha wants in at if someone, I'm, okay. Anyone else? Come on, Richard. Go ahead, Richard. I'm a little hurt that you think I still have character defects, Joe. <laughs> I know you're perfect and perfect. <laughs> ready to walk on the pond. My name is Richard. I'm a compulsive overeater. And uh, the thing that I think, you know, in terms of my character defects is that, and I'm kind of, I'm somewhat in the middle of it now and have been inventorying it and, and praying about it, is I started to not feel very good yesterday afternoon and that did not get, that didn't, hasn't improved today. And, uh, you know, I, my, I came out of a family where they weren't particularly interested and how I was feeling or what I was thinking. And, you know, if I expressed it, you know, I wish I had a buck for every time my mother said, you should not feel that way. So I quit, you know, I felt like I had this sort of glass head and people could look at me and tell how I was feeling, but I certainly wasn't going to tell you or anybody else. And when I don't feel well, I like to be left alone. And it doesn't matter how solicitous and caring uh, my spouse is, I just don't, there's part of me that just wants to be, <laughs> you know, and, and, it, you know, I see that as a, as a grave character defect is not wanting to be, not wanting to be intimate, not wanting to be, um, not wanting to share what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling, and, uh, uh you know, yeah, it has a significant impact. Teresa's hurt when I do it, but I it's usually not best for me to try to force the issue with myself. I'll come around, right? But in the moment, I just, uh, <laughs> I guess it's, you know, that selfishness and self-centeredness. And I have to laugh sometimes because I think about somebody in law school once told me that it was a cardinal sin to raise your voice to another member of the family. And I thought you would have loved the maelstrom of the Thompsons, <laughs> you know, with the, yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a, that was fun. And, but, you know, I am recovering from it. And 
it's, you know, one of the questions I thought, um, you know, if you'd ask, you know, is it okay to, and I'll have to use my own words here, Joe, jettison somebody from your life if they were doing things <laughs> that you found unacceptable after you've asked them to stop. I'm not necessarily going to ask them to stop. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it that's 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 highly situational for me and whether or not I'm going to ask them to stop probably depends on uh, how much I like them and whether or not I'm interested in preserving the relationship if I just want to you know rid myself of some irritation so it's uh you know the whole thing about relationships is uh, uh you know it's gotten better but I'm I'm absolutely not gonna not gonna walk on any pawns it's just I don't have it in me and the nice thing is that I'm more self-accepting than I've ever been and as I've shared in other meetings you know I enjoyed great recovery in this program and did it for years and then I slowly had a spectacular relapse and that went on for years too and if I wanted to beat myself up about it I certainly could and but not even God changes the past, Joe, and I'm glad to be here today. I think I'm in my right mind. I am abstinent, and I do wonder if I'm having some sort of an allergy thing with it being spring and all, but, you know, that's something that I'll get over. I know I'll get over. So anyway, uh, thank you for calling on me uh, from here in the sunny, crime-free, and non-judgmental Woodlands, Texas. Thank you. Who's next? Thank you, Richard. Don't be bashful. <laughs> Go ahead, Cassie. <laughs> Hi, everybody. <clears throat> My name is Cassie. I'm a compulsive eater. Yes, I did unmute myself, and so and then I didn't remute it so you can hear me laughing but um so i have i have quite a few thoughts um i really like this my feelings are my secrets today and i really i really think that's true um i have sort of struggled if you will um with um what are really character defects and um you know the ones past, you know, all the big line item ones, which are, you know, pretty easy. And those were really easy for me to, to make amends and go forward with, but um, my feelings and what's going on inside of me and that whole thing of, you know, like this, either got to be up here or I'm down here. Um, and, you know, I can see that it's slowly coming more like this. And, um, I always joke around um, <clears throat> that my life is about balance. That's why I'm here uh, right now is to find some balance. So the steps are to be neutral with the past. I really like that. And it, I was, was also just came to my mind. I have this right here, this beautiful little thing that um, somebody gave me that I framed and everything. Forgiveness is the willingness to give up all hope for a better past. And that is totally what I'm working on right now. And I've had that for a long time. A friend of mine gave that to me. Um, that's totally what I'm working right now. Forgiveness and really forgiveness to myself for whatever. Sometimes I don't even know, but I know that it's there because um, 
you know, I struggle with just being in balance. And um, there was quite a few things that were said today that I um, that I really liked and hope that I take with me and implement into um, implement into my life. So going back, and I feel like I'm there. I felt like I'm there for quite some time on step six and seven. And sometimes I felt like I'm stuck there. Um, and I probably am because I just need to define somewhat some of these things. And my feelings are my secrets today. <clears throat> and I can think of several things off the top of my head of which, but I guess what I was thinking today too, what I kind of realized is that these thoughts, these things are coming to me. Um, and so I'm not really stuck. I just have to take it slow and let it come. And it'll come to me as, you know, quickly as I can sort of um, accept it or deal with it or whatever. But I do have these realizations about uh, things that I do and my reactions to um, things that people say to me that, um, you know, they probably don't mean in any doggone bad way at all. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, I um, think that I have a lot of grace with um, lots of other things that happen. So holding down and defining what those things are and asking for my character's defects to be removed. So um, this was really, uh, it was, I uh, really enjoyed many, many things I heard today. I have a lot to take away to keep going forward. Thank you. Thank you very much. Who's next? Hello. I'm. Oh, go ahead. Hi there. I'm Annette. I'm a compulsive overeater and addict, and I'm terribly sorry. I was trying to send a private chat to one of the co-hosts. Um, I do want to just, you know, um, see if there's an opportunity to just describe the powerful, powerful way in which this session has impacted me. I don't want to hijack our discussion, but if it's appropriate, I appreciate a chance to do that. Joe, could you answer that, please? Uh, yeah, go ahead, Annette. Wonderful. Well, I think this is best illustrated by a message, an email that I wrote to Bronwyn during our last break. Um, I am in the Houston area, and um, it's I rarely see Joe these days, but once upon a time ago, we saw each other pretty regularly. I went to a Saturday meeting he hosts. I go to a Sunday night meeting from time to time and work with him on, um, on a, a service project or two. Um, so I was thinking that, you know, I would show up here and I'd be able to, you know, benefit from his experience, strength and hope, of course. Um, but then I hear a lot of the things that were, um, you know, familiar based on previous circumstances. So let me just read this email to you. It goes, Bronwyn, Joe is on fire in this session. My jaw just about hit the floor after the first hour. I knew that his content would be strong, but the photos and letters, et cetera, made his messages come alive in ways that I can't imagine forgetting. I was also surprised to hear several things I've never heard him say. I thought that a lot of material would, would sound familiar based on what he shared. Wow. 
Uh, thanks so much for turning me on to this. It, and I hate to say this because I know I, I shouldn't have showed up with any kind of expectations, but I said it way exceeded my expectations and I'm grateful for your service. So um, that is what I wrote. I did, do want to admit that I indulged in my um, character deep perfectionism and wrote and rewrote that message multiple times and, and didn't really matter, but I'm um, glad to have a chance to share my thoughts. Thank you all. Thank you, Annette. It's great to see you here. Appreciate it. Thank you. So I'm a compulsive overeater. My name is Jan, and I was just going to share that um, uh, a family member of mine and his wife are splitting after 25 years of marriage, and it took me by surprise, and I'm very sad about it. Um, and I like to go in and be the hero and fix things. And I also like to be the busybody and hear all about it and uh, be offer, be able to offer my wisdom, especially from a person who's never been married, certainly never been in a relationship for 25 years. But I'm, uh, and then as I'm sharing this, I'm going on now, I want a pat on the back for the fact that I'm not getting in their business and I'm not asking them all, all sorts of questions. Uh, especially the, the male half of the relationship who doesn't want to talk about things, doesn't, isn't interested in it. But I've both, I've let both of them just know that I'm there for them. If they need anything from me, let me know. And I'm pulling my nose out of it and not, you know, trying to get more details here, there and everywhere. And so my character defects applied to other people causing me to have yet another character <laughs> defect come up but uh, I certainly know I'm in the right place today to hear what I've been hearing. Thanks. Thank you. Yes, uh, Janice. Janice. No problem. I'm Janice, compulsive eater. Um, and gosh, Joe, thank you so much for your shares. Um, I've got about a full page written of notes and, um, you know, there's so much I liked it. I liked um, that I had to unlearn the lessons I got as a child. Um, I grew up with a very perfectionistic um, sister who saw everything in black and white and you know that, but I, I'm alive and she's not, and I'm recovering and I'm grateful for that. And there's so much, um, uh, so thank you a lot for the time you've given us and the insight and wisdom pass. Thank you. You know, they, they talk a, a lot about NAA when you, they go back out, you have a head full of AA and a belly full of booze. And, uh, you know, one of the hard things to do for me or has been for me is to get it from up here down to here. And I think that that's what the important thing is. And I think the way that I get it up from here to here to my heart is I act as if I act my way into the right way of thinking. And I think I act my way into the right way of treating people. And, you know, sometimes things come up where I want to do something for revenge or just to be nasty or something, and I just don't do it. And that's getting the message from my head to my heart. And I think that that is what's really, really important. 
The other thing is you never know when you're going to have an important relationship come into your life. I have a friend. I've been helping him for 25 years at least. He lives on this. He doesn't live on the streets, but he collects junk. 14, 14 hours a day, seven days a week to pay for his food and his rent. And I help him. I just help him. I keep stuff for him. I keep his money because his sister's a drug addict and steals it, that type of thing. Richard's black. He, uh, he, he went on a drug trip and never quite came back. But you know, what I've learned from him is so important because he is one of the most spiritual persons that I know. He always leaves when he, after he gets money from me or he's left something with me, he says, I'm praying for you, Joe, every day. And you'll see him out on a corner reading from the Bible. And he goes to church every Sunday. And he has a spiritual program. And, you know, people watch out for him. Uh, we recently got him a new bike because his other one was stolen. And, you know, we, we keep track of him. And, you know, one day he was in a park just reading the Bible and some woman complained to the police. And the police came and said, oh, we know Richard. He's not going to hurt you. And they had a story about him in the Chronicle. But to me, Richard is the same as me. He is no different. And what has happened is because I didn't treat him below me, I've learned from him the spirituality of just being. The spirituality of just being. And I think, you know, it's very, very important. He'll never look at you. I have a picture of him. And I, I said, look up, and he looked up, and it's because he lives in a different world than me. But the reality of it is, in God's eyes, he and I are the same. And thank God, in my eyes, we are the same. And that's what's important that has come from working step six and seven, and not allowing my character defects to hinder my intimate relationships. And when one character defect comes up, is to turn it into a character asset. And that's what's really, really important. Uh, it is time to close, but I, I, I always like to close with this. Even if your ass is falling off, don't overeat. They say in AA, don't drink. Even if your ass is falling off, don't drink. In OA, I say, even if your ass is falling off, don't overeat. And if you don't overeat, more than likely your ass will fall off. Thank you very much. I appreciate you asking me. You're muted, Cassie. Cassie, you're muted. I was talking, <laughs> I'll hear myself so much I couldn't hear that. Um, thank you, Joe. Thank you for being um, with us here today. It was fantastic um, to hear you. We sincerely appreciate you sharing your spirit, strength, and hope with us today. Together, we get better. A reminder that the opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. Please remember to honor our commitment to each other's anonymity, take the stories, but leave the names behind. OA Rise's goal is twofold, to provide speaker meetings twice a month and to maintain a website to store the recordings of our speakers for both you 
and for the OA Fellowship. Please give what you can to keep OA Rise going. The seventh tradition information is in the chat. OA Rise needs members to give service to the meeting. It's a very simple commitment that includes attending one business meeting, one speaker meeting per month. No Zoom experience is necessary. We will show you what to do. Additionally, we're always looking for speakers and speaker suggestions. And Dan, Jan told us a little bit earlier how to, you can get that info to us or now in the chat, whatever you'd like. Thank you everybody for being with us here today. After we close the meeting, we'll open up the chat for a short period of time and you can unmute yourselves and connect with others if you'd like. Please join us again in two weeks from today, which is, um, it is March 19th. March 19th, and the uh, topic that day is the 12 Steps, 12 Tradition um, of Overeaters Anonymous. And I think that um, that's all there. After Mono's silence, we're going to close with um, Roseanne's prayer. I put my hand in yours, which is in the chat if you don't have it. So just look at the very last chat. It is there. And um, Joe, could you lead us, please? Um, in the closing prayer. Sure. Your moments of silence. I put my hand in yours and together we can do what we could never do alone. No longer is there a sense of hopelessness. No longer must we each depend upon our own unsteady willpower. We're all together now, reaching out our hands for power and strength greater than ours. And as we join hands, we find love and understanding beyond our wildest dreams. Keep coming back. It works if you work it and you're worth it.